Hello, everyone, and live from Harrison County, West Virginia, we want to welcome you to the Healthy Harrison podcast. This is a show designed to help you change your state. I'm Amy Haberbosch Wilson, Healthy Harrison Board President, and today our co host is our Vice President, Brock Malcolm. Bryce is a local healthcare attorney here in Harrison County in West Virginia. Welcome, Brock. Thanks very much, Amy. Good to be here. We're streaming this program live on our Healthy Harrison Facebook page, as well as on the statewide distribution network of our media partner, WestVirginianews.com. Every week at this time, we chat with individuals who in their personal and professional lives or both share the mission of Healthy Harrison, that being a foster to foster measurable improvement to the health and well-being of the people in North Central West Virginia. Our theme for today's show is Sleep Well, Live Well. And today we have with us Dr. Sunel Sharma. Welcome, Dr. Sharma. Thank you so much, Amy and Brock, uh, having me here on this podcast. I think there's a great uh, service you're providing to the state, and I'm very excited to be with you. Thank you. We're, we're honored to have you as well. Dr. Sharma is professor and chief pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine at WVU. Um, Dr. Sharma, I, if you want to go ahead and give us a little bit of your background and your credentials, we'd love to hear it. Sure. Uh, so uh, in plain English, my role is to lead a team of best lung doctors in, in the state uh, in serving to reduce the immense burden of lung disorders and sleep disorders in, in our state. And uh, <clears throat> in essence, we want to have West Virginia breathe better uh, is, is uh, our mission. And um, apart from being pulmonologists, we also wear the hat of sleep doctors and ICU doctors. So uh, all in all, we are involved in both COVID care, pulmonary care, and sleep care for the state. As you uh, are well aware that West Virginia has the highest prevalence of chronic obstructive lung disease, or COPD, as we call that. And that's a direct impact from cigarette, high cigarette smoking rates and exposure to coal mining and dust. Not only do we have a high prevalence of COPD in our state, but we also have the highest readmission and deaths because of that compared to any other state in the country. So lung is a big issue in our state and that's our mission to help people breathe better and hopefully sleep better. What got you into Sorry, go ahead, Brock. Go ahead. No, please. I was just curious, some of your background and what got you into this? Yeah, that's a very interesting story. I've been um, off the medical school uh, grid, I'm sorry, for almost 20 years. Uh, but I do remember distinctly working uh, in, in those days, TB was big. And I saw the first time in my life somebody coughing up blood. Uh, and and uh, that person had a very advanced TB, and it uh, really bothered me that this couldn't have been caught earlier and, and treated when it's such a treatable condition. And that uh, led one thing to the other, and when I did my med school, I could, never could stop thinking about that case and uh, decided to become a lung doctor, and the rest is all history. Dr. Sharma, I have a, a number of clients who have been working more recently in the areas of um, pulmonology and, and trying to get what, you know, everybody knows about uh, cardiac rehabilitation, but 
pulmonology rehabilitation is is an area it's not well funded and and access to that is uh, uh, pretty limited across our state and I know that WVU is obviously leading efforts to try to expand those resources. Um, it, it really is amazing that when people receive the proper kinds of treatment for COPD and other things, the improvement that they can make. I think Brock, you uh, hit the nail in the head. Uh, you know, we, we had for a long period of time focused on the heart, which for the right reason. Uh, but I think that in our state specifically, we need to focus on the breathing. Uh, remember that we don't breathe, the heart doesn't work either. So uh, <clears throat> as far as COPD is concerned, you're very correct that not only the lungs get weak, but the infrastructure and the muscles with support also get weak. So getting pulmonary rehab and access to good pulmonary care uh, is a very fundamental uh, part of the management of these chronic disorders. Dr. Sharma, um, tell us what sleep medicine is and how it actually affects our overall health. Yeah, so um, sleep medicine is very interesting. Um, if I may say, and put it into three, two, three buckets, uh, one bucket is people who sleep way too much and I can't function during the day because I am so sleepy. Uh, I cannot put my focus in my work because I nod off in front of my computer. So that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is I can't sleep. I'm pacing all night long. I am tired all day. I dread going to bed. And, and these stark spectrums have become even more uh, extreme because of the stresses that we have in life. Given you a little perspective, 100 years ago, we as humans used to sleep good nine hours. And all of these sleep disorders were much more subdued. I never said that they never existed, but they were subdued. Fast forward 100 years, we as human beings are sleeping at an average five to five and a half hours. So we had a chronically sleep deprived society. And that has led us to expose these sleep disorders even much more. And that's a big problem because if you look at just one sleep disorder, which is a very common sleep disorder called sleep apnea, where people, when they're sleeping, obviously unknown to them, they quit breathing in their sleep momentarily and they lose oxygen, called sleep apnea. We in the United States itself, lose $150 billion a year just because of that disease. That's the economic impact of just one disease sleep disorder. So it's, it's a huge problem and I think it affects everybody. You know, uh, it's rare that you're ever gonna bring anybody in front of me say, this person doesn't sleep, so he has no problem. Every one of us sleeps, so everybody needs to be cognizant of these disorders, even if you don't have a disorder, being aware of them is a good thing because that improves your own self-awareness of these sleep disorders. The other very important aspect of this historical comparison, which I just uh, made to you, 
is our engagement with electronics and social media. That has further exposed us, may not be to sleep disorders, but to sleep deprivation. And that's causing major havoc uh, in our society, in our people to operate on a daily basis, feeling tired, fatigued all the time. If this is combined with underlying sleep disorder, then that becomes a real double whammy, in my opinion. So I think we need to address sleep not only as a disease process, but as a healthy process, how we can make it more healthy to get more out of it. As humans, we will spend one third of our life sleeping. And to think that one third of our life will have no impact on the other two thirds would be pretty naive to think. So these are not two separate compartments. They rely on each other. So our quality of life during the daytime is heavily dependent on how our night goes. And the night is bad, there's gonna be a spillover effect on the entire day. So how could you feel better? How could you perform better if you're not doing a good job with your sleep? And I think that's where we are, if I may say, burning the candle on both hands with all the social media and the poor sleep hygiene. And that's one of our hopefully attempts with Healthy Harrison Project, which we call the Sleep Well. Makes sense. Does deprivation turn into disorder? Absolutely. So whether sleep deprivation is self-induced because of social media, because you've got deadlines to catch and you're continuously depriving yourself of sleep, or you develop insomnia where you just can't sleep. Both of them will have devastating consequences. Sleep deprivation eventually leads to glucose metabolism disorder and can lead to diabetes. So just one single simple thing is that your medical health is at jeopardy if you are shock-changing your sleep. Other thing is insomnia, sleep deprivation. Our studies have shown they are twice more likely to die than people who have good, nice, healthy sleep. So not only are you getting diabetes and other medical problems, hypertension, but you're much more likely to have a bad outcome if you don't take care of your sleep. Dr. Sharma, you know, obviously if I'm not sleeping because I'm up all night watching Netflix or looking at my phone, that's mm -hmm. something I can control. But what's, what's particularly ominous about sleep apnea is I could go to bed at a regular time and, mm -hmm. and wake up at a regular time and have had miserable sleep without really knowing that I did. So a sleep study like the one that you're running is, is important for the diagnosis of that condition. That's an excellent point, uh, Brock. There's a really good study by a researcher in Australia who looked at the prevalence of sleep apnea, which we call in many ways a silent killer. And he uh, estimated that the prevalence Worldwide is a billion people. There is no disease in the world which has a billion people suffering. Even worse, 90% of it is undiagnosed. So people are, as you mentioned, suffering through it, uh, waiting to have a bad consequence. And there are several bad consequences of undetected sleep apnea, including 
heart attack, strokes, uh, you know, diabetes, hypertension, pulmonary hypertension, congestive heart failure, all of these have been associated very strongly with sleep disorder breathing. So as you alluded to me, that was one of the things which I was interested in is that if this is so prevalent, and as you know, one of the biggest risk factor of sleep apnea is obesity. And unfortunately, our state is number one in the country for that. So by default, we have a very high burden of sleep apnea. Majority of this is undetected. So one of the programs which I've been working for over a decade now is how can we find out about this disease when these patients are admitted to the hospital? So you don't get admitted because I can't sleep well. You get admitted because you have heart failure, you had uh, myocardial infarction, or you had uh, lung disorder where you couldn't breathe. And many a times, all of these diseases, the engine running it is the underlying sleep apnea. So yes, we fix it. We put a Band-Aid on it in a hospital, but you go back and that engine starts back and you're back in the hospital. So we decided that anybody who gets admitted with these deadly conditions, we're going to have a screening process for them. And over the years, we defined that screening process to a novel two-step screening process. And we found out that it was as good as getting a sleep study done in a, in a sleep lab. So very, very, very high predictive value. So what we intended to do was that, listen, you have got admitted to the hospital with a heart attack, okay? However, we think that there's an underlying disease which may be pushing you in that direction. So we have identified that, and we want you to know about that and do something to treat that. And when we did that, we found out that the people with heart failure were less likely to get readmitted to the hospital. Patients with COPD were less likely to get admitted to the hospital. And this just wasn't 30 day readmission. We looked at a very long period of six months to know that this is actually working in the natural history of the disease. And we thought that to ourselves in West Virginia, you know, because of multiple issues in our state, which are not faced by other people like access to care. Uh, people live three hours, four hours sometimes for medical facility. Uh, poverty. In uh, multiple other reasons, sometimes they don't even have a primary care doctor and their first interaction with medical care is being admitted to the hospital. And we wouldn't be doing them any service if we didn't tell me that, tell them and educate them that this is what's running the whole process or contributing to that. So although it's applicable universally, I think in our state is even more important where people don't see primary care doctors, don't have doctors, routine visits, uh, and nobody gets screened. So that's what the hospital sleep medicine program was, is to uh, ensure that we capture the disease early on so that they don't get into this repeated cycles of admission and uh, readmissions. But I think that, Brock, you do bring a, a great point over here because if you look at worldwide, as I said, there's 1 billion people with possible sleep uh, disorder breathing, very few percentage get admitted to the hospital. 
So the wasp problem is still at home, still out in the community. And I think that's where we need to focus. That can be educated, can be empower people. And the more information and knowledge they have, the more they are likely to bring it to their doctor and say, listen, I heard about this. Can I be checked? So well, what I, symptoms should they be looking for, doctor? So I, I think that in the, in the sense of education, I would still like to break it down into two buckets. I think one is just pure good sleep hygiene. There are so many myths about sleep out there. And that's one of the simple things to treat. If you knew this was not happening and you were educated, you wouldn't do that. So you wouldn't be pushed in the direction of the disease. But let's say, as you mentioned, that you did get into a disease format, what are the things you're going to look for? I think one of the most important salient point that I've learned in this year is listen to your sleep partner. They have more information than you ever believe. So if your sleep partner says you snore like a freight train, okay, listen to that because that is very, very important because snoring is a very important symptom of this disease. Now, I'm not saying all that snores is always a disease, but I'm saying that all that disease you have snoring as a main component of it. Your partner may even say, you know, I'm a little bit scared because between these snoring episodes, you just get silent, okay? Feels like you're not breathing. And that is a very, very concerning symptom. Uh, that's the apnea. That's where you're choking. That's where your windpipe has completely cut off and no oxygen is getting into your system. Of course, we are not designed not to breathe. So somewhere in your brain, alarm bells starts going on and say, hey, the body is going to die if you don't open up. So the brain part, which is sleeping, now has to wake up subconsciously, open your throat up. And that's when you sometimes see these people like this and they wake up all of a sudden. And this cycle repeats several times during the night. And that puts their heart under pressure. That puts their lung under pressure. And that's what pushes them into this disease format. So having your partner, having a good discussion, taking them seriously, you snore. I, I swear I hear sometimes you just quit breathing or hold your breath. These are important signs. Waking up tired. You know, if you were in bed for seven, eight hours, you should be springing up with life. You should be jumping out of the bed. Why are you dragging yourself? You know, why are you hitting that snooze button a million times? And then all of those are also telltale signs that your brain was working hard to keep your airway open. You didn't realize that, but brain never went to that depth of sleep, which is rejuvenated, which makes you feel good and rested and ready for the next day. So I think those are very important signs and symptoms. Uh, that one should monitor. Thank you. I want to remind everybody real quick, uh, this podcast is brought to you by WVU Medicine, United Hospital Center, Western University, The State Journal, WesternUnews.com, and Interaction Media. Today we're talking to Dr. Sharma uh, with WVU, and we're talking about, uh, Dr. Sharma, I understand you're working with Healthy Harrison on a Sleep Well, Live Well project. Can you tell us a little bit about that, or what can you tell us about it? 
Yes, this is a still an ongoing project. Uh, not sure again, uh, I'm privy uh, to tell everything about the project, but uh, this again goes back to my two buckets, which I was alluding to, is that our first aim and goal is to make people realize how important sleep is for you. The sleep disorders come later on. It all starts with a poor sleep habit. And these are under your own control. Uh, these are myths. These are some bad habits you picked up. There is something which, which uh, uh, you, know, you were not aware of which you're going through. So the sleep awareness program is, let's take that education. What do the scientists have found out about reality about sleep and take it to the community, let them get educated, and then let's monitor. So kind of like changing habits, micro habits at home. And one component of it is to just say what's happening with their sleep. In normal day-to-day, -day, you know, you, you have to get up, you have to work, so you're not going to stop your life for me to, to do the study, and we don't want you to. This is a very natural study. We want to know what your sleep looks like. So what we have done is, you know, with technology being so advanced now, uh, we have provided uh, a group of uh, volunteers with a sleep tracking device. It looks like something like this, which is on my finger. It's called the Aura. Uh, this aura ring is able to monitor a wide variety of sleep indices in you, which we are able to say, how much do you sleep? Are you waking too often during the night? Why are you waking so often during the night? Um, do you take naps? Uh, do you feel rejuvenated? How is your heart rate correlated with that? The more rested you are, the better your heart rate. So why are your heart rate out of control? All of those parameters have important implications on your health. Then we ask them, listen, these are the myths in sleep. And we want to tell you how scientifically you can correct it and improve your sleep. And with this small change, which you do at your home, in your bedroom, and whenever you want to do it, and we provide them with a little video of what should be done on a routine basis which scientifically can help you improve sleep health. And then we monitor them before and after what physiological changes happen. Sometimes these changes have profound impact that you can feel yourself, that those things have made a difference in the way I conduct. But many of times these are subterranean, that your body is liking it, your heart rate, your body is sleeping better, but you may not have felt it as profoundly as much. And both of them are good. So we are looking at both of them, how to improve that. Because if your physiological parameters are improving, then you are moving away from the disease format, even if you don't feel the significant impact of that. So these are very small changes which we are making, which are under your control. You decide it, you just listen to it. Sometimes you can follow, sometimes you can't. But when you're aware of it, instead of never following, you may follow five times out of 10. The next week, you may follow seven times after 10. And that's moving you towards better health. And that's what we are tracking, not only subjectively, but objectively. Dr. Sherman, there's, there's a lot of advertising that we see on television and, and 
everywhere about this bed or that bed, you know, the sleep number beds, the, the memory foam beds, the purple beds, and, and almost as many pillows. Um, does, does your sleeping environment make that much difference? And if, if it does, what, what should our viewers be looking for if they are struggling to sleep? So that's a good question, Brock. I'm not, a I'm not going to comment on any manufacturer or sleep of that, but I'll give you like the 30,000 view as from the sleep perspective, is that your environment is very important. Uh, your mattress is very, very important. You remember that, that you're going to spend probably one third of your life on that mattress, so it better be comfortable. Um, I think that a lot of it comes down to personal preference. And there is no data that the hardest mattress, which you know feels like a cement is the best for you, or the softest one, which you kind of get buried inside is the best for you. Most data suggest that somewhere between the two, a firm mattress, not very solid, but not very soft, is what helps you align your spine the best. Now, I would flip that back again to the person. Look at your body, feel your body. Are you waking up with backache? Are you waking up with strain in your neck? Do you feel your shoulders hurting every time? If that's, you got a wrong mattress. That's very important. But even more important than all of this thing, which makes a huge difference, is old mattress. That's more important than saying this vertical manufacturer or this credit technology is the old mattress. These old mattresses can get really soggy. The, you know, the coils of them can get destroyed. They can be you know, jutting in outside the mattress and, and putting uh, pressure onto your body, which you don't need. Uh, you know, all of that makes a huge difference uh, between how your body feels with the mattress. So the biggest thing, which I always tell, look at this, the age of your mattress. If it is really old, and not only it is saggy and is not holding your body, but it may have bed bugs, it may have allergens, all of those things which are creeping up and, and spoiling your sleep, throw that out and, and get a new one. When you get a go to new one, just feel it out. Just feel what feels good, what feels right to you, what doesn't give you pain. That's the most important part. The second important part is know your sleep. You know, some of us are you know, as you say, good sleepers, you know, we put our head to the pillow and we're knocked off. Others are very sensitive sleepers. So if you have a bed where your partner takes a turn and it, you know, creates waves across the Atlantic, then of course that's a problem. So then you may want to have, you know, for example, a foam mattress, which absorbs those movements and motions so that your partner is not affected as much as that. So those are things which you have to globally kind of look at, uh, you know, uh, whether one firmness is helpful to you as compared to the other, whether foam mattress is thing for you because your partner makes a lot of changes and, and is a rough sleeper. All of those things are very personal. Uh, the most important thing is not to have an old mattress. And number two, know your body. How often should you replace your mattress and pillow? Again, it also varies because how rough a sleeper you are, 
You know, if you're one of those bouncers, you may need to relook at that in every four to five years. Sometimes, you know, some people are very quiet. You know, you wake up and hardly a sheet is, uh, uh, you know, moved in any direction. And those mattresses can go on for seven to eight years uh, time period. Um, just make sure nothing is sticking out. The coils don't look there, you know, bad. They're not making too much noise and being squeaky at night. Uh, when you get up from your mattress, there's not a hole which you left behind. Those are, are very, very practical things which we all can do to make sure that this old mattress is not serving its purpose anymore. I'm curious about food. What about food? What are things that you should eat, shouldn't eat before bed? You hear all different things. Don't eat something spicy before you go to sleep. It, you know, nightmares and certain things do relax you like a cup of warm milk. Yeah. So that one is a more simpler answer. The, the, the victim on sleep is to not eat before you go to sleep. That should be all. a complete no. Generally, should be not uh, eating at all. The reason for that is when we are going to sleep and our body goes to sleep, our metabolism goes down. You're not digesting food. So whatever you eat is sticking out in your stomach for a much longer period of time. Then when you are up around, your metabolism is working. And what it does is then stomach has food in it it wants to digest it. So it starts spewing off acids. Acid is what stomach does. That acid can then, because you're laying down in the bed, can come and track up your esophagus and give you heartburns. Uh, it can spoil your sleep. Uh, it can even spoil on a long-term your esophagus. So in general, we recommend you should not be eating anything at least two to three hours before bedtime. Now, having said that, you know, this is a, this, this advice is good for 90% of the people, but some people say, you know, I just feel so hungry that the cramps won't let me go to sleep. So in, in those situations, a light, very light, like a, you know, 2% milk with little cereal, something which can be easily digested. I'm certainly against slopping off a whole pizza, uh, you know, 10 minutes before <laughs> you go to bed. That's going to give you a lot of heartburn, not only that night, but the next day. And a consistent uh, eating leap before uh, your bed uh, definitely has been linked to significant weight gain. So uh, you got to be cognizant with that. Uh, a, a, small, uh, a small bowl of fresh fruits, you know, apples fat, that may not be a bad idea. Although one should avoid more citrusy foods because, again, you don't want acid uh, when you're sleeping in the night. So, uh, yeah, if it is a bowl of milk with the cereal, I'm fine. But if you can avoid it, please do. So what, what, what is your recommendation on naps? Small naps throughout, no naps at all? Yes, and then there's a really, really long science about naps going on. We have studied that long and hard. Uh, the big picture on naps is that good and bad. The good part of nap is that it kind of can sometimes give you this fresh burst of energy which you need to get through the afternoon and you feel rejuvenated. You can do more, much more uh, than you can. But these naps have to be early in the afternoon and shorter in duration. Okay? Then they might be able to help you. However, if they are too late, and too long, they can do more damage than good. 
the way they do damage is one, if you take it too late, then your sleep rhythm at night gets spoiled. You can't sleep at night because you already got the sleep pressure taken out of you. And our sleep is dependent on two rhythms. One is your sleep pressure, which means how tired you are. And the other is called circadian rhythm, which is a genetically controlled rhythm. And both of them have to align together to give you that perfect sleep. So if you take the sleep pressure, you may not have enough sleep uh, inertia to go on and ride that circadian rhythm at that time. So it, it's, it's like you need both, like singing and music. And if they're disrupted, it's, it's, it, it feels odd that they are not together and in, and in harmony. So I think they need to be in harmony. If you take too long a sleep, you might hit into what is called the REM sleep or the dream sleep. That makes you actually very sluggish during the daytime. So you may wake up more confused, more tired. So that's the flip side of taking a nap. Now, you also need to look at your body. Some people tolerate naps well and others don't. And, and it, it just makes them even more groggier. It makes them feel more slower. So I think that all in all, siestas, as they call in Europe, are generally a good thing, but as long as you can avoid it too late and too long. And by too long, I mean none of the naps should exceed more than 25 or 30 minutes in the afternoon. And that's the most optimal. Well, I know that you um, you have some other meetings and so we need to wrap up soon. Could you give uh, just a, maybe your top three takeaways for people who are watching to, uh, you know, changes they could make today that will immediately improve their sleep? Presuming, of course, that they don't have some sort of dysfunction, but maybe, maybe if they do these things and they don't improve sleep, then they know that they might be a candidate for a, a deeper sleep study. Yes, and, and I think that many take-home uh, messages uh, from today. One I think is that just having awareness of your sleep, just paying attention, okay? Avoiding any social media, blue light at night. Uh, one of the biggest reasons why our sleep gets disrupted is too much light on our retina. So when you're on phone, when you're on laptop, uh, that prevents us from going to sleep. When it prevents us to go from sleep, then not only the sleep is delayed, but it is less in quantity. So you're kind of uh, hurting, getting hurt both ways. The second is sleep is not a switch on and switch off. So you can't say, I'm gonna just dash on this last email and then I'm gonna hit off and then suddenly go. You need to wean yourself and sleep. So you always, if you say 11 o'clock is when I sleep, at 10.30, everything should be shut off and you should be, in that weaning protocol. And it, it could be whatever makes you relaxed. That's the bottom line. Light music, light reading, meditating, you know, just being with yourself, whatever calms you down. Because the number one reason why people can't sleep is when they take Mr. Stress to, breath, to bed with them. Okay? The constant thought process, what's gonna happen? What's happening now? Why did he say this to me? What am I gonna do? When you take those things with you to bed, you can't sleep. Once you can't sleep, then all of that infrastructure falls down like a pack of cards and, and, and you feel bad and your move starts moving towards the disease format. 
The second take home message is have a conversation with your partner, a genuine, nice conversation. How do I sleep? You know, am I a restless sleeper? Am I bouncing all around? Because I just don't feel that energetic in the morning. Do I snore? Have you been awakened? Just listen to my snoring. Do I have pauses? You know, it just, does it seem to you that, that my quick breathing? And then you're really looking at something which you need to clearly get to, to, to fix or, or see a physician or your primary care doctor. So I think these are some things you can do right away, improving your sleep and making sure that there is no disease that you're missing. And I call that like a fire under the carpet. So you want to take attention because everything on surface would look okay. Uh, but these are the ways you can figure out whether there's something wrong. Well, thank you. Well, that was great information. information. Yeah. yeah. Really Good Just want to thank everyone for joining us today for the Healthy Harrison podcast. It is our goal to change your state of mind and ultimately change the state of health here in West Virginia and throughout really everywhere. We want this to, to everyone to pick up and be healthier. Um, Harrison County, state of West Virginia. If you want more help right now, you can visit the healthyharrison.org or visit Healthy Harrison Facebook page and give us a like. You'll find lots of support and you can stream past episodes of our podcast on the Facebook page. Again, we'd like to thank our sponsors today, WVU Medicine, United Hospital Center, Western University, The State Journal, WVUNews.com and Interaction Media. On behalf of Healthy Harrison, Brock and I wanna thank you for joining us today. Today we had Dr. Sunel Sharma. Thank you very much, Dr. Sharma for joining us. Great information. Thank you, Amy. Next thank week. you, Brock. Thank you. Thanks so much. Next week, Gary and I will be talking with Sheriff Harmon um, on highway and gun safety. So everyone, thanks for joining us today and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.